Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Uh, We are not in Jude, as the email says, uh, but I believe that God has some really awesome things for us this morning, uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited to jump in. Uh, I'll start with a Tanner fun fact. Uh, I have a 18-year-old brother, uh, for those that don't know. Uh, he's about to graduate high school. He's about to step out into the world. He was at his, he's going to Lee University, which is a small Christian school in Tennessee. So he's about to jump out into the world. He's, uh, he's about to go experience new things, make new friends, get a degree. He's going to be at the place in his life where he doesn't have to text my mom and tell him he's going somewhere. He gets to just go. Uh, and so he's at this new, like, exciting point in life. But it's really, really ironic uh, because my brother, we used to have to keep him on a leash when we would go places. Uh, like, it was this green vest that had a dinosaur on the front with this long green leash. Uh, my brother had this keen ability to snack for running away. Uh, I remember when we went to Disney World, like it was just this kid on a leash, and you, he would still be on it, and you would go like that, and off he would go. And it, yes, it was one fear that my brother would be lost, but there was a whole nother fear that we had. Uh, we were always really scared that he would get his head stuck in something. Uh, my brother had a really big head, uh, but... He, he would just go look into things. So there was one time at one of my hockey games, the bleachers, he would like take his head and he like stuck it in the bleachers to like look inside, but he got stuck. And it like, it became less about the game and more about getting my brother out of the bleachers. Uh, there was another funny time where at my elementary school, there was this large air conditioning unit outside the school. And there was this big fence that goes around it, but the fence didn't go all the way up to the wall. It just kind of stopped right there perfect slot for someone to get their head stuck in. And my mom looked down and my brother was gone. And the next thing we know, he's, he's stuck in this, in between this wall and this fence. And it was kind of like, you know, when you get a ball that goes over the fence and it gets lost and you like go and you put your hands through the fence and you try to walk it up the chain link to try to toss it up over the side. Same idea. We just, (laughs) we just took it. His head was just in there and we just slid him up the slot until he got all the way to the top and then we took him out. That was my brother. I was so confident that they designed the leashes for him. Uh, It was that, it was the necessity. We had to have him on a leash. Now, when you guys meet my brother for the first time, you're going to be like, you're the kid that gets his head stuck in everything. Uh, But he's a very smart kid, and so we're so happy, you know, that he's about to graduate high school. But it really leaves me with a question. Uh, Do we ever feel like we're going somewhere, but we're never where we need to be? We're always trying to get places, but it's like my brother realized that he was stuck in this spot, but it wasn't really where he needed to be. and that's why we kept him on the leash. I can picture my mom like looking down at him and say, I need you to listen to me. Like, pay attention. Stay right here. Uh, why? Because my brother was going to go exploring and he wasn't going to be where he needed to be. And I feel like we live in a society that says, go, 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 go. Don't stop. Uh, move up the ladder. Move up the chain. Make a name for yourself. Uh, and that's the same kind of anxiety that I dealt with before I knew Jesus. And we become easily distracted. We find our opinions more in those on the internet and those that don't know us than the presence of those that love us so dearly. 
And we start to feel this anxiety because the world tells us to be one thing, uh, but we don't take a moment to realize what we need. And we wake up in the morning and we hope that our sheets and our bed become our amnesia because we want to forget yesterday and don't want to step into tomorrow. And we get lost in this anxiousness. Our, our stomachs start to turn and our hands start to sweat and our minds start to race. And the moment that we take time to think about it, we hate it. We, we've, we've stepped into this insipid apathy where we've become really devoid of emotion, uh, really because no one tells us that it's okay to express what we really feel. Because uh, I'm really left with questions when, when was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried? When was a time that you stayed up so late that you lost track of time because you weren't worried about what you had to tomorrow and you just hung out with your friends? How often do you become so captivated by a story that chill bumps run down your arms and you can't stop thinking about it? When was the last time you felt truly free? When was the last time you felt truly known? And we don't like to take time to think about these questions because then we, get to, we start to feel those emotions and then we feel like we aren't progressing as a human being and, and, and we're, we're kind of stuck. Because I think we all recognize something's not quite right with this world. We have our heads stuck between a wall and a fence, but nobody's really sure what to do about it. My brother was like, he's stuck in this fence, and no matter how much he pulled, he couldn't get out. And it was only the perspective of someone else that would just slide him up the slot that realized he could get out. Because I think we realize that even the moments of deep joy, we always realize that there's a little bit of pain. And in the moments where we taste the most amount of life, we always still taste a little bit of death because we realize like there was something just quite not right about it. And I think that really what it comes down to is kind of where we focus ourselves in worship. And today is kind of, as it says, the act of worship, but really something bigger, the necessity of worship. I'm not going to make an argument today for how to live a full life. That's not where I'm going. I'm going to show you that I think we need something, and not just the necessity of worship, but why. Why we worship. Because I think we've become a culture, we, we worship, but we're devoid of a focused worship. It's really not in our vocabulary. We've forgotten how to revel in the name of Jesus. Uh, we've forgotten how to rejoice in every moment which is a shame because the Christian life is founded on worship. And I don't just mean singing a song like we just did, which is worship. But there's something deeper because it's, it's to delight. It's to adore. It's to be in reverence to something. It's, it's to worship. And so I'm going to be in Luke 19 today, uh, verses 28 through 44. Uh, and it's a really cool story as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, uh, but I'll let the text speak for itself. So I'm going to pray and we will jump in. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your, your scripture, for your good news, for your word. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you open our eyes today to see what you have for us, God. Uh, that wherever we are, Lord, that you would begin to, to speak to us, Jesus, in our situation, in our time, uh, and in this moment, Lord. Uh, we, we thank you for this opportunity to get to worship together. Uh, God, we, we just pray that you are glorified. It's in your holy name that I pray. Amen. I'm going to just jump in, uh, starting in verse 28 of Luke 19. 
And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he, drew new, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two, his, two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever, ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Like, untying the colt, and he says, The Lord has need of it. And we don't get their response, but I'm sure it's more like a, All right. And off they go. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. And we're thinking more, it's more than just 12 people here. A whole multitude began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent... The very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. There's only two times Jesus weeps in the Bible. And here's the second. Saying, would, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so we have this picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He knows that he's going towards his crucifixion. He knows what's awaiting for him. He, he's going in for the Passover. He's probably going to be apprehended soon. And, uh, you know, we know the rest of the story as it goes. And so he's coming into Jerusalem with his disciples. And it's this moment of worship. It's a moment where they're laying down the, their cloaks, and we know another text that says, Hosanna in the highest. And it, it's this moment of worship. I, I think there's, like, let me kind of set the stage. Can, I, can you put up the next picture? It's really pretty. Faith, can I, can I ask you do, you, do you like what you see? If, how did, so let me ask another question. How does this make you feel? Peaceful. Peaceful. If I could put this picture in a frame, or maybe you could set it as your background, or if you could possibly live here, would you take any of those options? You would live here. It's stunning. All of these questions that I asked took you down different steps of delight. First, you just liked it. But then you started to appreciate it because it made you feel a certain way. And then you're saying, I'd live there. And you're making a claim about the, the quantity of time of which you're going to spend in one place and appreciation of it. You're stepping down this, this funnel of delight. And I think we, we, we go, oh, that's so good. Uh, but really, I want us to notice this first point that I have. If we do not worship God, we will worship something else. 
It's part of our nature. We find a way to delight in the things around us. So your feelings towards that picture and that place are not wrong. But it's where you direct them when you have them. Because if you do not direct them towards God, you will begin to worship it. You will begin to delight in it. It's the same thing with your friends. It's the same thing with your spouses. If you, if you are not worshiping God in relationship to them, you may begin to worship them. We think about this in the, the people of Israel. These people that are set apart by God, that they are the people of God. And if we read the Old Testament over and over again, they disobeyed the one that created them. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And in that time that he's receiving them, the people of Israel already made a golden calf and began to worship it. Because they, like, they were wondering where Moses was, and so now their attention was being drawn away. And they are going to worship that calf, and not the Lord Almighty. And so you have these people that continually fall into disobedience. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The people of Israel setting their sights on things that ultimately don't fulfill, and they are worshiping them. And we live the same way. The, we see God, though, as still this, this redeemer, this person, that is, this God, this being that is calling his people back into worship of himself because he's recognizing that if you don't worship me, you will worship something else. And we do recognize that God is worthy of the worship, for even the rocks would cry out. What a powerful word, what a powerful text, that even if you were silent the rocks would begin to cry out. There's a place in, in Romans 8, 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is churning to be with God again, for things to be restored. It says, if we go back to that idea of we recognize that something's not quite right, but we aren't sure what to do about it. So we fill in our things with everything else, we fill in our time with relationships. We fill in uh, these, these events. I fill it in with spike ball, right? I, I do these games and, and because I'm trying to find some type of fulfillment. I, I'm going to, like, I went so far as to become a spike ball ambassador. I started, a, I started an Instagram page uh, called Rose City Roundneck because I want to start a club here in Portland. I literally just had a text come up on my iPad for someone that said, Can we, are we playing today? Like, it's, it's, it's happening. Like, I love this game. And I'm, like, beginning to worship it in a sense. I, like, watch all these videos of all these guys playing. It's really goofy. Like, I just watch these four guys run around a net and hit a ball really cool. I'm filling myself up with so many things, and we're doing it all of the time. Every single one of us are filling ourselves up with something. And so these, these Hebrews, the, these people of Israel, they, they recognize that. 
And we see over the course, even in Jeremiah, how it talks about you've, you've filled your time with these other things. If you go throughout the text for Jeremiah, it eventually goes, you get to this point in Jeremiah 29, 14, where it says, God will restore your fortunes. God will be the one that will do it. And then Jeremiah 30 through 33 is like this book of comfort where so, so far through the book of Jeremiah, God has been promising pestilence and famine and all of this pain. And then you get to book, the book, like chapters 30 through 33, and it's just God constantly saying, I'm going to restore your fortunes because God is faithful to do what he has promised, Psalm 145. He will do it. And so these people know this. And so when we think about worship, we do need to picture the Israelite people. These people that were very, very disobedient, always running away from their God and always worshiping something else. But yet God was faithful to them and they did recognize that. There was a, I, I want to read a, uh, a psalm to you in just a second. It's Psalm 130. And Psalm 130 exists within these group of 15 psalms. It's called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of the of Ascent was when the Israelites, three times a year, they would go back to, to Jerusalem for different feasts. The Feast of the Passover, which is when God brought his people out of Egypt. So they're celebrating that. There's Feast of the Pentecost, which is not what we're thinking in Acts 2. It's also known as Feast of the Harvest. It's when they're uh, celebrating God for all that he's brought them in the fruits of their labor. And then the last one is Feast of the Tabernacles, which is when they were in the wilderness uh, and God provided for them there over the course of their 40 years. And not only is it remembrance for how God provided them, but it's also they're looking forward to the promised messianic age. And so they would go back to Jerusalem three times a year to, to, to worship God uh, in this holy place. And so they had these Psalms of Ascent. And it's the psalms that they would sing continuously as they were going up to Jerusalem. Uh, we know that Jerusalem is the highest point in Palestine, Palestine, and so they would go up this hill. So they're literally ascending up towards Jerusalem. But it's also, you're supposed to read it in another way as well. They're looking up towards God. They're ascending towards God. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous book uh, written, it's kind of a commentary uh, on Leviticus, and it, the title of the book is, Who Shall Ascend the Hill of God? I believe that's how it goes. But it's really this question, because Leviticus is all about all these, we read all these laws, and really it leaves us with the question is, who's going to ascend to the mountain of God? Who's going to get there? And I think we can even picture, as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem here, these psalms of ascent probably would have been in his mind. As he's going up to Jerusalem, he would have been thinking uh, of these psalms. So I want to I read Psalm 130 for you. And just picture as these people of Israel are heading up towards Jerusalem. These are some things that they would say. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in this word, I, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, 
there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. These people that have been so disobedient to God, but God had been so faithful to them, and so they say words like this because they're in utter adoration. They're reveling in the name of God, the name of Yahweh. We find the people of Israel remain in constant worship. Why? Why? Is it out of obligation because God wants them to? Is this like some kind of command that they're supposed to travel there three times a year and they're supposed to say these songs that maybe God will begin to love them more and that there will be more redemption? I don't think so. It's out of necessity. God needs to be worshipped. Many people balk at that statement that God needs to be worshipped. But I want to show you why he does. And I think you think one thing, and I think there's something else that's happening here. God has provided for these people over and over again, but there was no complete restoration. Even today, darkness runs rampant in this world. Even the Hebrews saw that. Even the people of Israel saw that darkness was still running rampant. If you go to Jeremiah and you go to the end of the book, it says, I will restore your fortunes. And it is a promise that God will take them out of the city of Babylon and bring them back to Jerusalem, which he does. And there's this promise of restoration to fortunes, but it still was not complete restoration. The people of Israel saw that. When you go to the Old Testament and you read these stories of God restoring fortunes and bringing his people back to this promised land, please, when you read into the New Testament, see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. And I'll explain that more in a second. But when you go to the Old Testament and you see that God's to restore their fortunes, things were restored, but yet darkness still ran rampant. And so even the Feast of the Tabernacles, when they went to Jerusalem, they were looking forward to the promised Messianic age, the promise of a king to come, who would set everything right. Isaiah 2.3 says this, Come, let us, thinking of the ascent, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God at Jacob, that, we may teach us, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We were talking about Eugene Peterson and the message earlier, but here's how he kind of lays out that passage. He says, come let us climb God's mountain, go to the house of Jacob. He will show us the way he works so we can live the way we're made. It's a necessity to be worshipped. And so when I say that, what does it mean for God to need to be worshipped? Please picture it in the image of kind of my second point. The image of our worship is found in Jesus Christ. So before I begin to unpack what it means for God to need to be worshipped, please, this whole time, carry this idea with you. The image of our worship is found in Jesus Christ. We can turn to Luke 19.38, which is in our text, and it says this, as the, as the disciples were worshiping the Lord, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's not some ambiguous worship. It is directed towards a figure. It's directed towards Jesus. Blessed is the king. 
For Colossians says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, is invisible and visible, whether rulers or authorities or dominions or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a hymn on Christ in the book of Colossians. And when we worship God, we're not just worshiping some ambiguous ideal that's far off in the distance. We have a king who came to this earth, and he is the image of the invisible God. So when we worship, we don't. We have a figure that we worship. So when we think about the, the necessity, why we need to worship, there's... It's really kind of a question of apologetics. We deal with this question, I think, when we talk with people out in the city. Because we're asking people to come worship this God. And I think they go, your God is some narcissistic egomaniac that just wants to be worshipped. Like, I don't want to follow this narcissistic God. So how do we begin to answer this question of, like, saying, uh, like... Not only are we inviting people to come worship God, we're saying that you need to come worship God. So first off, the first idea, right, is when we think about God, we do notice him as this great and high figure. I think oftentimes we have too small a view of God. We think of God in human terms instead of God terms and letting God define us. We define God. So there's that certain element which we have to work through. God has existed eternally. He's the greatest being in all of the universe. And so it's not just that we worship him. It's that it's the greatest thing of delight that we can have. So there's an element in which inevitably we turn our direction and our worship to him. In the same way that we looked at that picture, like we begin to delight in it. And if we really look towards the Lord, we can't help but delight in him. So there's that certain sense in which that's a necessity. But there's something else going on. Because God has existed eternally, he's also existed eternally in three persons. Now, I'm not going to pull out all the understandings of the Trinity. But one thing that we can learn from it is that God has existed eternally in, in love. In a community of love. Of love being poured into one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do know that from the Trinity. So, in one sense, he's inviting us to worship the greatest existence in all of the universe. But in another, he is inviting us into love. For God is inviting us in and asking to turn our attentions towards this love. We can't help to appreciate what is beautiful. So that invitation into love into delight, into that adoration. It doesn't leave us stranded. Because if we do not step into this love, I will promise you one thing. You will decay. We can turn to Luke 19, 41 through 44, which is also in our text. And it goes like this. These people of Israel, 
the, the king of the universe has now come. He's on the scene, right? And his disciples are worshiping him as he is coming into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees rebuke, rebuke and say, Father, like, Rabbi, tell your disciples to stop. And he says, even the stones would cry out. And now he's looking over Jerusalem. He's looking over the people of Israel, the people he knows that are going to deny him and put him on a cross. And he looks at these people and he says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace, if you had known, if you have seen me, and the things that I have done, and who I am. Because what's the promise in here? If they don't, if they don't look towards him and recognize him, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You will decay if you do not set your sights on Jesus in worship. We must be focused on, as, on Christ as the, as the center of this worship. Because he goes to the cross ultimately for us. He is hung upon a tree. And Deuteronomy says all those that are hung upon a tree are cursed. And so when we read that, we should see the cross in it. That he's hung upon this tree. And why is he cursed? He's cursed because he's taking our curse. What a reason for him to be worshipped. For him to be adored. For us to revel in the name of God. Because we're going to worship something if we don't worship that. Kind of a third point. And this is kind of like really the bottom line. If you walk away, take this. Please take this. We look towards God to look away from ourselves. We look up. We ascend the mountain of God. We ascend the hill to look away from ourselves and to look towards God. When we live this life, especially the Christian life, it's a much like ascending a hill. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a book, uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's this faithful pursuit upward of looking up towards God. Because our society really does kind of show us that the more time we spend with ourselves, the more time we get lost in ourselves, and the more that we like start to like ourselves and the more that we start to praise ourselves because the Christian life is a striving to see the face of God it's a striving for holiness not that we can do it right we have to hold up the image of Christ again not that we can do it but through the work of Christ we can realize the desire we have always had C.S. Lewis kind of explains you know we have we all have this feeling for something more this, this desire for something more. And we will set it upon something if we don't set it upon heaven where it will be realized. It's that same idea. The desire for the presence and the goodness of God, the thing that we have always 
placed onto worthless objects, but now realize when the true one appears. This, this adoration of worship of God. There's in, uh, this is a powerful passage to me, uh, and it's, it's John the Baptist. Uh, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's been set apart as a prophet of God. And he says this when, when Jesus comes to be, to be baptized, and John gets the honor of baptizing Jesus, and he says, I'm too worthless to even untie your shoe. And Jesus says, this is the way that it has to be now. And these are the words that come out of John's mouth after he baptizes Jesus. Oh, maybe it's not up there. Do I not have it on there? John 3. Ah, this is what he says after he baptizes Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We look towards God to look away from ourselves. Here is John, this prophet of God. His joy is now complete in that God increases, but he decreases. It's a, it's a looking away from ourselves and looking purely at Jesus, this divine one. And it, 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 is, it is lifting him up as a one that needs to be worshipped. Why again? One, because he is so far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Because we can't ignore the fact that we will delight in something if we don't delight in him. So first we've got to pick a what, what are we going to delight in. And he is worthy of that delight. The second is he's inviting us into a love that is far surpassing than anything that we can understand. He's inviting us into a community that we get to live in. C.S. Lewis, again, he writes this. It's powerful. It's from his book, The Weight of Glory. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so is our worship. So is our adoration. We're far too easily pleased by minuscule and minute things instead of the Lord of the universe. And the best part as I iterated before, God is not just some enigma or idyllic formula. Because unlike any story we have ever seen, the God of the universe steps out of heaven, walks on this earth, feels all of our pain. He became something we could resonate with. A God that felt all of the same pains. We're stepping into a worship that is totally reorienting. Because we focus our attention on the Lord we will inevitably focus our attention on others. We can't help it. The Lord is listing, living in this community of delight between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And it's, it's, it's reorienting. When you find yourself in that love and that delight, our worship becomes something where we can't help but to love others because of the thing that we worship. So we walk into a place, and my good friend Andy uh, said something yesterday about the power of encouragement. And I think that's so true when we think about worship, living in community. Because when we start to see others, if we truly see God, the imo- like the image of God, if we truly see him in Christ, when we look at other people, we can't help but see the imago Dei, the image of God, and we begin to love them. Uh, if you think in terms of Portland, if we just get really contextual, the people of Portland are running because they never felt understood. So we have, we have like a massive transplant city. People are coming from all over the place, everywhere. Why are they coming here? Maybe it's because they never felt understood where they were, and they were promised this type of Eden, this place in which they could find their true identity. They were going to find themselves in a place that is tolerant, that lets them explore, to find all these different things. We, most people, they, they don't feel understood, so they turn inward, and they never expect anyone to resonate with their pain. And honestly, I don't think sometimes people want people to understand their pain. They want to keep you at arm's length. They don't want to let you in. We can hardly understand ourselves without the pain. And I think this is the beauty of our worship. Because we step into a place, and anywhere, and we revel in the name of Jesus. Because he didn't leave you stranded. Where we step into a place where we feel truly understood by the king of the universe. We're, we're, we're left with a question oftentimes, who really knows us? And I did ask that to a friend once, and he said, me? I guess just me. And I said, wow. What would it be for someone to truly know you? And what if I said Jesus knows you better than you know yourself? What, if, what a freeing thing. To know that I don't have to figure it all out. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if anybody knows Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, living in time of Hitler's reign, this, this, young, this young man, seminary professor, but zeal for the Lord. Uh, he says this, I don't have it on the screen, but he says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize it is rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. I want to change the words. I want to change brotherhood to worship. Christian worship is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality by God, created by God, in which we may participate. The opportunity to ascend the hill To look towards the face of God is not something that we have to realize or make known. Let me be clear when I say God does not need our worship. He'll exist without it. You are completely unnecessary, but so deeply wanted. 
because God is love, and he gives his love. He pours his love out. He can't help but do it, and it's the invitation to participate in that love. This is why Paul says in Philippians uh, 3 or 4, Aha, 3, 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. He says also, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a reorienting of mind and of thought and of focus. Looking towards God as the only one that deserves to be glorified. So how, like, how do we do it? You know, I don't want it to just be some, like, like idea of, like, oh, man, I, like, I, I should worship God. Like, uh, how, like, how do we really go about doing it? First, we need to think about kind of creating space. This is a space for worship. You need to begin to recognize your tools for, that allow you to worship. In this community, this brotherhood, this sisterhood, to, to gather in this place to worship, be here. Be here. Because if you cannot make time in your week, like this is a sanctuary. And when we get to ascend the hill on a Sunday morning, this is a tool to create space. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're all pretty good at crying out to God when we're in desperation. But we're never very good when, it's, when we're in joy. Everything's happy-go-lucky when we're in joy. When we find ourselves really happy, we don't really find ourselves on our knees in the morning. There's nothing to cry out for. But the more that you live like that, you will slowly begin to decay. Because what are you doing? You're worshiping your own happiness in that moment instead of the Lord who gives you your joy. We must find ourselves in the Lord at every moment to worship not only in desperation, but into joy as well. Taking every thought captive, doing everything for his glory. So, a thought that I've always tried to keep in my mind is when I look at pictures like we looked at, and how beautiful it is, when I look into the face of someone I deeply love, when I'm in this city and I think about how God brought me here, and I, I think about the experience that I have, when I have a really great serve in Spikeball, every moment like this that feels so nice, I praise the Lord for it. I thank Him for it. I revel in the name of Jesus for what He's given us. It's, it's, it's to take a moment to slow down. A way that we can worship the Lord is how I explained in the, uh, a bit ago. We don't often like to, to think and deal with the deep problems that are in our minds and in our hearts. But we begin to worship God by creating space to do that, to wrestle with those things. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but they explained meditation this way. Uh, when we first begin to meditate, it feels like people are coming from everywhere and it's like your head is a door and everyone's knocking on it saying let me in let me in let me in all these different thoughts and all these different feelings it says let me in let me in and oftentimes we do let them in but what he explains about meditation is those people will begin to disappear when they realize that they can't get in 
It's that same idea of long obedience in the same direction in our meditation. If we let people keep knocking and we don't let them in, they'll eventually walk away because they realize they couldn't get in. And it's creating that space, it's creating that time to surrender to God in that. To, to worship is, is to delight in the name of Jesus. Do we delight in it? When you think about Jesus and the things that he's done, does it send chills down your spine? Has it ever made you tear up? Has it ever made you wrestle with the, the truth of what it means for me to be a sinner and what it means for God to forgive me? It's, it's to surrender. To worship is to love. To worship is to surrender. To look away from ourselves, to look up towards God. To surrender. To be in service to people. I want to read one more psalm before I close. It's psalm 150. The very last psalm in the book of Psalms. Uh, we often interpret the Psalms as this prayer book for the people of Israel. It's what they worshipped God with day and night. And we looked at the Psalms of Ascent, 120 through 134. And these, these people of Israel have these Psalms for these certain occasions. And I think it's so fascinating that the book of Psalms ends with Psalm 150 and what it says. We, the book of Psalms go in and out of desperation and joy and praise and you get this flood of emotions from all these different directions you see these people crying out to God you see David saying as a deer pants for flowing streams of water so my soul pants for you O God worship was oxygen to him it is where he found life to rest in the name of Jesus and that is that is that is the oxygen in which he breathed and so we get this up and down, up and down, all through the Psalms. And Psalm 150 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Nowhere in that psalm do we find, like, God, remove this from me, or why is this happening to me? The book of Psalms ends simply with praise. It is the necessity by which we must live to revel in the name of Jesus. It is what satisfies. Ever feel like you're going somewhere and you're not where you need to be? First time I walked into a church on my own accord, I was 18, I was 17 years old. I walked into this church. I barely ever heard of the name of Jesus. That was completely foreign to me. I had an idea about God. Uh, I like to know what I, was going on. Uh, but I walked into this, this church building, and I don't remember anything that the pastor or anyone sung or said or anything like that. But I looked at all the people around me, and they had their hands in the air. They had these tears rolling down their cheeks. 
They were crying out loudly. And for some people, it may scare them away, but for me, it enthralled. I, I was captivated by this worship. And it was in that moment that I realized I was going somewhere. I was going somewhere. But I wasn't where I needed to be. The necessity with which they worshipped was something that I realized that I needed in my own heart. Do we have our heads stuck between a building and a fence? Do we need someone to kind of reach down and like walk us back up and throw us to the other side? Because you're going to delight in something. You're going to ask something. Like whether it's an inanimate object or a person, you're going to ask it to satisfy you. But it won't. You will decay. And we must live a life praising and dedicated to the Lord in worship, in surrender, in stepping into that love that we are invited into. We look up to God to look away from ourselves. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for your word. Lord, we know, God, that even if we were silent, even the rocks would cry out. You can't help be worshipped. It is the necessity for all of your creation to cry out to you, to churn for you, to turn on the inside for you, God, to need you. Without you, we will we'll slowly begin to fall away. So we thank you for this, this opportunity to rest in your name. It's, it's an invitation to participate, to participate in the love that has existed for all of eternity. Jesus, teach us how to worship you. Teach us how to walk with you. God, what we do not know, teach us, and what we cannot see, show us, so we can become more faithful worshipers, that we could slow down for long enough to recognize that you are where we need to be. We thank you for this opportunity, this life, to ascend the hill. What a journey it is to look up towards you, to walk fast after you, to strip everything away and see the name of Jesus as the image of our worship, someone that we can resonate with, someone that we can walk with. We thank you for that, Jesus. Because nothing in this world was satisfying me, but you did. You satisfied me. So thank you. Thank you for that. Lord, we now thank you for this opportunity to go and take communion. This opportunity to remember what you have done. To truly revel in the name of Christ. The work that you did. The blood that was shed for us. The body that was broken for us. We get to take a moment to think about that. To picture that. That in this moment you really do get to become the image of our worship. Jesus, there's, there's so many feelings in this room, so many wrestlings, God. Bring, bring peace to us in this moment as we rest in the name of our good shepherd. That if we stray, you knock us back in line. We thank you. We thank you for your name. It's in your holy name that we praise, and it's in your holy name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.